Okay, while everybody's settling down, let's uh, review announcements a little bit. Just a reminder, the men's two weeks, and we have the men's camp out. And then um, the two announcements I've been emphasizing the last, uh, since Sunday, the last two or three times, is first of all, we have uh, two financial needs that uh, were brought to the attention of the uh, uh, deacons and which we thought would be important and legitimate to bring to the attention of the congregation for contributions to the Benevolence Fund. We have a need for a missionary whose wife is in need of surgery because of some uh, kidney problems. And then there's also a situation of a a member of the congregation who's in um, a serious financial Situation due to unforeseeable circumstances, and we felt like that was was a legitimate uh, legitimate need. Also, the Grand Canyon trip. Uh, this is in um, uh, May, May sixth to thirteenth. You way it works is you fly from wherever you are to uh, Las Vegas, spend the night there, unless you can get there really early the next morning. And everybody meets together in the lobby of the hotel there about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And then we take a bus ride that takes most of the day to get up to Marblehead Canyon and to uh, spend the night there and, and then put into the river the next, the next morning. It's seven days on the river. At the end, you fly out on a helicopter, and then you take a small prop jet from a uh, uh, <clears throat> ranch there into... Uh, uh, it back to Las Vegas and then catch your plane and fly home. A lot of people think it's uh, physically rigorous. I hate to disabuse you. It is not physically rigorous. The nickname for the trip is the float and bloat trip. You sit and dodge splashing water for about seven hours, and the rigorous part is at the end when everybody forms a line and you pass all the gear off of the off of the raft up to the campsite, and then the next morning uh, you do the reverse and pass it back down to the uh, to to go on the uh, back on the raft, and it's uh, it's a great trip. You learn a tremendous amount. You see just incredible scenery, the kind of things that you can't see um, at any other time. And Steve Austin has been doing this for probably close to 35 years. He is a, an expert on the geology of the of the canyon from a creationist perspective. In fact, he's written a number of uh, uh, peer-reviewed articles that have actually had an impact in changing how the geology of the canyon is viewed, uh, even by evolutionists. They've had to come to admit certain things about the canyon. That doesn't mean they're ready to change their their worldview, but he has certainly brought some things to their attention. Um, Bill, right back here, went last year, and he's going to go again this this coming year, so you can ask him about it. But it's a it's a tremendous trip, and it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And we have room for about uh, somewhere between four and seven people to go on this particular trip. If you want information, the cost is thirty two hundred a person. And if you want uh, any more information, you can let me know. I'm still looking for Melanie Martinson, whoever she is. If anybody hears or uh, puts a word out, then she signed up last uh, March to go on the trip, and I have no uh, contact information uh, for her. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The reason we do this is to continue to rehearse and remind people of the importance that the Scripture places on being in right relationship with the Lord, being cleansed of sin uh, spiritually, which comes as a result of confessing sin. So after a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess uh, any known sins to God so that you can be cleansed and forgiven, then um, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this time to come together this evening and to uh, focus on a very significant, important topic that is addressed several places in the Scripture, but is particularly relevant in our time living in our nation at this point in our nation's history. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these important principles and how to work them out in terms of uh, both our understanding of history and our understanding of current events, and that we can... Uh, as believers, focus on our understanding on um, the role of the national entity and national government and how we as believers are to relate to the national entity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to First Peter. We're in First Peter chapter 2, and we're beginning tonight in verse 13. First Peter 2, 13. And while you are turning there, I'm going to turn to another passage just by way of introduction. Since we're living in a time of um, a lot of confusion for a number of people in terms of how they're going to vote in November, we have gone through the basic principles in the past. This is a 2008 series. You can go back decision-making in the voting booth, and I encourage you to go back and listen uh, to those basic principles in how to how to make a choice and their fundamental issues and most of what people are arguing about are not fundamental issues we got to get back to fundamental issues and we're going to talk about one of those uh, one of those tonight but one that I did not uh, spotlight in that series that I think is an important element in making any sort of decision especially at the national level uh, comes out of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. There Paul writes, Therefore I exhort, which means to challenge or to encourage people, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, uses three distinct words there, all related to making requests of God, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then he starts breaking down the categories uh, of authority. For kings and all who are in authority, he's, he focuses on for a reason. Uh, it's that reason that's important. We're to pray for government leaders, whether they're at the local, city, municipal level, or whether they're at the state level, or whether they're at the national level, that they will do something, that they will... Uh, that, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Now, what does that mean? That means a life where we don't have to worry about government interference. We don't have to worry about government restricting the uh, First Amendment rights of Christians and local churches, um, that we can be focused on the mission of the church, which is giving the gospel and teaching believers to grow to spiritual maturity without spending as much time as we've spent the last 10 years talking about uh, the problems in government and how to understand government in terms of what the scripture teaches and what the divine institutions are and, and being involved uh, politically. We all should be, not because we're Christians, but because we're citizens of the United States. And that is an assumed responsibility. When we were in high school, we had to take civics courses, and, and uh, people would get, get uh, grades in relation to citizenship and understanding what that meant. Though, though I don't think they do that anymore. But we have a responsibility as citizens to vote and a responsibility to vote knowledgeably and intelligently and to know what the issues are. And, and this is incumbent upon every person just because you're a U.S. citizen. Now, if you're a Christian and a U.S. citizen 
And you've got the Word of God telling you that everything that you do must be done to the glory of God, then citizenship responsibilities are certainly a subset of everything, right? Everything pretty much doesn't leave anything out. So citizenship isn't something that you as a Christian put on the uh, put on the shelf. And one of the reasons I say this is because if you look at the polling data from the 2008 election, that you had a significant number of evangelicals that didn't vote for silly, superficial, and stupid reasons. And that got us Barack Obama. And then in 2012, because there was a Mormon running on the Republican side, you had an a lot of evangelical Christian. Barack Obama got elected with fewer votes than uh, who ran in 2008. See, we don't even remember these people. Um, was it Dole? Was that Dole? No. Who, McCain. That Barack Obama got elected in 2012 with fewer votes than McCain got in 2008. Why? Because evangelical Christians stayed home. So if we have Barack Obama as president, you don't like it? It's because Christians didn't vote. Blame the church. It's the Christian idiots who don't know the word of God and don't know their responsibilities that are fragmenting. And you go out and you read the Internet, and Christians are all over the place. They can't unite. They can't go vote. I'm going to stay home. This is a guarantee for failure. And we're gonna, and I'm gonna blame the church. I'm gonna blame every single evangelical Christian for the mess we're in because they're failing to live the Christian life. They're failing to think biblically. And if they don't get a leader that is 100% aligned with their views, then they're not gonna vote at all. And that is idiocy. There was another civilization that did the same thing that fragmented over in, in terms of arrogance like this. And it was the second temple period Judaism. And in the first century, they were so fragmented because you had all these different groups that either you were going to do everything my way or we're not going to play. And so the result was that when they revolted against Rome, they were so fragmented that when the Roman armies uh, encircled and surrounded Jerusalem, and were uh, completing their final assaults before the destruction of Jerusalem, the, these subsets, all these different Jewish groups, were not only fighting and killing Romans, they were killing each other. And that's exactly what we see among conservatives and, and evangelical Christians. We're more concerned about attacking each other and attacking somebody who doesn't see it 100% the way we do than doing uh, the right thing biblically. We don't understand what the what the basics are. And one of the basics is that we need to be looking and evaluating, especially presidential and national candidates, in light of the fact, are they going to support the First Amendment? Are they going to be more or less likely to create an environment that is positive for the church, where the government is going to stay out of the business of the churches? We already saw a failure in that part. Um, under the current president's administration when the IRS started investigating any kind of conservative group, and many of them are conservative, uh, religious-based 501c3 organizations. And so we have to be looking for somebody who is more likely than less likely to strengthen or at least to to, uh, prevent any further deterioration in the application of the First Amendment. So that's another criteria to think through. We'll evaluate some quickly as we go through this. I'm not redoing a series on voting. Um, anybody can go back and listen to that. So we are in we are in First Peter chapter two, looking at this section. Actually it begins in verse thirteen and goes down through verse seventeen. So um we have five verses that are all focused on this one topic of honoring the king. Now, as we have looked at First Peter, we've seen that Peter is writing this to a group of primarily Jewish background believers, and he's writing to them in light of the fact that they are currently experiencing and will experience more opposition, adversity, resentment from others, and possibly even persecution. 
And so he depicts this using terms like uh, fiery trials. Um, Chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about being grieved by uh, various trials and that this is all part of testing or evaluating the... um, their faith in terms of its approval, its positive aspects, as will be present at the future judgment seat of Christ. We saw that the first uh, 12 uh, 12 verses of 1 Peter focused on introducing this theme of being prepared for that future evaluation, not for salvation determined eternal destiny, but roles and responsibilities in heaven uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. Then starting in one thirteen, he begins to focus upon uh, sp- various specifics. In the, those, uh, that section from one thirteen down to 25, he focuses a lot on conduct, a theme that he uh, picked up again, as we just saw in the two transition verses um, from the first division, which really goes down to one ten. But he then talks about having honorable conduct among the Gentiles, that is, among the Gentiles, uh, and this would include the government. It includes uh, Gentiles who might not be be believers there in terms of marriage, uh, also in terms of owners for slaves or servants. And so this whole next section that we see going down through uh, chapter 4 is going to deal a lot with one of the major problems that every one of us deals with, and that is being obedient to an authority with whom we disagree. I'm not going to say it's an unjust authority. I'm going to say it's just somebody we don't agree with. It may be a parent that wants us to do one thing and we want to do it another way. It may be a husband who wants to do things one way and the wife wants to do it another way. It may be a students in a classroom dealing with a, a teacher. It may be uh, athletes dealing with a coach. It may be soldiers dealing with the military. There are all kinds of circumstances and situations where people want to buck the person who's in authority. And that person may or may not be right, but we still don't want to do it. We want to somehow justify, find reasons to justify uh, disobedience to authority. Now, authority is a, an, an authority orientation is a subset of a broad do, uh, doctrine that we describe as grace orientation. To be oriented to the grace of God demands, first of all, genuine humility. And genuine humility means that we have to recognize who we are uh, in relationship to God, that uh, ultimately in terms of salvation, that God is the one who does all the work, and we submit to that. Uh, Humility is a poorly understood doctrine, and when we look at the the ultimate example of humility in the Scriptures, it's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And there we learn that, that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of the cross. Now, if anybody ever experienced something that was unjust or unfair, it was Jesus going to the cross. Here he's never committed a sin, he's never done anything wrong, never violated any law, and yet he was unjustly condemned of a capital crime and he's sent to the cross. That becomes Peter's major illustration of of, uh, submission to authority when we get down into the latter part of chapter 3, and on into chapter 4. That becomes a standard. And Jesus submitted to the unjust authority of the Jewish religious leaders and also to the unjust authority of, of Pilate, and he didn't rebel. He, If anybody had a right to rebel against an unjust authority, it was Jesus. And yet he doesn't do it because that's the example. And we have to understand how that fits in, and I, we've talked about this recently, that authority is the key issue in terms of sin. It goes back to Lucifer. It goes back to the original sin when Lucifer said said in his heart, I want to be like God. He is rejecting the authority of God. And so what's the first test that's brought to the human race? 
It's whether or not they're going to obey God, an authority issue, by not eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan tempts in that arena of authority. And so this is Satan's original sin. It is a violation. It is a rejection of the authority of God. And this is why the scriptures again and again and again come back to the importance of authority and submitting to various authorities. Because when we don't, we are following Satan in his original sin. And that becomes a basic, basic issue. So authority orientation is a subset of grace orientation because it involves humility. Now, there's another doctrine that flows out of grace orientation, and that is loving one another. Before we can love one another, we also have to have genuine humility, and we have to um, have, have that kind of humility you know, evident in our mentality and in our, in our life. And if there's two areas of application are two areas of doctrinal teaching that I hear more grumbling and griping about from people who say, that is just so hard. It's either loving one another or it's being obedient to authority. Those are two of the most difficult issues. And the only way you can resolve it is, is, is through God the Holy Spirit and walking by the Spirit and applying doctrine because we can't generate this on our own. There's no way that fallen human beings can do that because the basic orientation of our sin nature is it's, it's me, it's all about me, it's not about you, and what do you think gives you the right to tell me what to do because it's all about me? That's basically what your little sin nature and my little sin nature always says, and that's, our, that's its default position is in a position of rebellion that anything that contradicts what, what I want. So what Peter says here, he sums it up, in the, in the last verse, he says, honor all, love the brotherhood, that's other believers, loving one another. See how that's connected to authority orientation. Fear God, again, authority orientation. Fearing God means to more than just respecting God. It involves being f fearful at some level of the consequences just like when you were a little kid and your mother probably said something like, well, just wait till your father comes home. Okay, there's respect for that authority and there's fear for that authority because you know there are consequences for disobedience. So honor all, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So he begins this section really focusing on uh, what it means to honor the king. And he focuses on the believer's responsibility. And what the way I want to approach this is I want to go through the basic uh, uh, structure of the passage and what is being said here and why it's being said, and then we'll broaden it out. Um, in the process of looking at it, we're going to compare Scripture with Scripture because this passage finds an extremely close parallel in the first six verses of Romans chapter 13. And these two, if these two passages were out of the Bible, Christians would have revolted against the pagan secular government we have a long time ago. But this is the important, the, these two important passages keep Christians as, as, ori as those who are oriented to the authority of government because government is initiated and ordained by God. The, the way human viewpoint paganism looks at government, just like it looks at marriage and just like it looks at family, is these are just um, various, uh, various things that were developed over time uh, on the assumption of an evolutionary framework. These were conventions that are developed over time because they work better than others. You know, there's something that man developed through trial and error, and we figured out that somehow uh, marriage works a little bit better than not, not marriage, and that civilizations that honor marriage, especially more of a patriarchal marriage rather than a matriarchal marriage. Uh, you go back, I remember studying in sociology in college that, that you, there were a, a lot of civilizations that hold to some form of matriarchal marriage and matriarchal family. 
We don't know a lot about them because they're usually aboriginal-type civilizations that never advanced very far. But any civilization that advanced very far, that had any level of cohesion and was able to pass on their values from generation to generation, had a patriarchal family structure and had a strong emphasis on the family. The Romans certainly did. And this was integral to building a solid civilization. So uh, when we look at these things, we have to recognize that they're not conventions that were developed through trial and error. But the Bible says that just as God created the physical universe, God also created certain social laws, laws that relate to how human beings relate to him and relate to one another in the sense of of a society, by that I mean a group of individuals who are uh, having fellowship, who are communicating with un- with one another, and and living together. This is uh, the basic meaning of a society. So, any kind of government over a nation is certainly a society. And this is the fourth divine institution. When we get to the end, I'm going to uh, start going over the divine institutions again. But this is the fourth divine institution, which is um, related to human government. And it also relates to the fifth divine institution, which is that of nationalism, which is certainly a, a doctrine that is under severe attack uh, especially by people who are all in favor of open immigration. It is destructive to the nation, not because people are racist or biased or any of the, the, the uh, calumnies that are thrown at those who want to have border security. It is because we recognize that it is important to have uh, border security in order to preserve the identity of a nation. But once you do that, it, it causes the collapse of a nation. But under liberalism, the whole idea of a nation is being viewed as something that is evil and wicked and and destructive of rights and privileges. So let's just go through the text. First Peter 2.13, Paul reaches a conclusion. He's gone through the transition of 11 and 12. And now he says, therefore... And as I've pointed out, whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you have to see what it's there for. That's right. Some people have listened. And it's drawing a conclusion from something that has been said before. And what was said before is this uh, c- uh, command this in- to have conduct that is honorable among the Gentiles. And so what happens over the next two two and a half chapters is that Peter is going to talk about how this honorable or what this honorable conduct looks like how it is manifested and it's and his focus is not on a lot of things that we might focus on his focus is if you don't have authority orientation in the various spheres of authority in which you live then you can't have honorable conduct so this is fundamental he goes to the foundational doctrine of authority orientation so he says therefore Because you're supposed to have honorable conduct, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance. Notice he didn't say most. He doesn't say the just ordinances. He doesn't say the ordinances you agree with. He says submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, that's the qualifier. And we studied this before, and we know that there are specific circumstances given in Scripture when a believer is legitimate in disobeying uh, the command of governing authority. And it's very simple. When the government authority tells you to do something specific that is specifically prohibited by the, script, by the Scripture, then you're justified in disobeying God, I mean disobeying man under the principle that we obey God rather than man. On the other hand, if the government tells you specifically to do something, that God specifically tells you not to do, then you are uh, within your rights to disobey the government and obey God rather than man. But I'm emphasizing the fact that this means um, something, that this is something specific. Now, let me give you an example. And I'm not taking one side or the other on this issue and using this example. 
But in the Roe versus Wade decision, it didn't mandate abortion. It gave permission for abortion. But nobody was told that you have to go abort a baby. Now, if the government had said, you must abort the baby, which is like China had with their one-child policy, then you would have a problem. But when it just is giving an option, then it's, it, it, it's not a problem. You can still do what you want to. Nobody's telling you you have to abort a baby. Uh, we saw other examples of this when Nebuchadnezzar, uh, not Nebuchadnezzar, but when uh, Darius si- signed into law, in the, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, a law that said that for the next uh, 30 days nobody would be allowed to petition anyone other than the king. This was directed specifically to Daniel, who was known to pray uh, three times a day, that when Daniel, uh, uh, that it was designed to catch Daniel and to trap Daniel and to end Daniel's political career, that Daniel disobeyed the law because the law was telling him not to do something that God told him to do. And we have other examples with the midwives, and we have, of course, the example of the Sanhedrin telling Peter and John that they can't proclaim the gospel anymore. And they said, um, in, in Acts chapter 4, they said, uh, we have to obey God rather than man. But those were specifics. They weren't just general principles. And a lot of times I hear Christians say, well, there's a principle here. Well, Peter and John didn't say there's a principle here. David did, uh, Dan, um, excuse me, Daniel didn't say there's a principle here. Uh, the midwives didn't say there's a principle. There were specific commands that were being, they were being asked to violate. So when we look at this, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Just as you have commands that that, uh, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, the pattern is Christ. Uh, Wives are to submit to their husbands. How? As unto the Lord. You know, that's a barometer there. Uh, we might not want to push that too far. We might have a revolt from a lot of wives, but the barometer for your submission to your husband is, or for your submission to Christ might be your submission to your husband. If you can only submit to your husband 30% of the time, that might say something about your ability to submit to the Lord. But that gets too convicting, so let's move on. Um, The word for submit here is the Greek word that we find in all of these passages that make it so difficult. It's the Greek word hupotasso, and it means to to put yourself under the authority of someone. And that when you're under the authority of someone, then we're going to do what they tell us to do. And that's just the difficulty of it. Submitting to authority means that when you have somebody who's over you in an authority relationship, then we are to do what they tell us to do, whether we like it or not. And that's one reason that military used to be so good is because even if young men didn't learn authority orientation in the home, they didn't learn it at school, then you could send them to the Marine Corps, you could send them to one of the other services, and after boot camp, uh, if they could learn authority orientation, they would learn uh, authority orientation. So the idea here is very strong, and it means to do what the person in authority says to do. And the word there for authority, the first, um, the, the first word, um, uh, let every person be subject to governing authorities, uh, that's a little different word, and then it goes on, changes for there is no authority. That uses a synonym, exousia, which has to do with uh, power, uh, a tribunate, which is a, a judgeship in uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, there's no authority. There's no judicial authority. There's no uh, executive authority except from God. That means that, that this involves, we'll get into the will of God a little later on in the passage, but this allows God's permissive will as well as we'll see his active will. Sometimes it is God's active will for there to be an unjust ruler. Sometimes God just allows people to choose an unjust ruler. But in either case, we talk about it as the will of God. God is the one who ultimately rules 
over human history. So here we have the uh, uh, same principle that we have in um, uh, 2 Peter, submit to every ordinance of man for, for the Lord's sake. Here in Romans, it's the same principle. Let every soul be subject, it's hupotasso again, to governing authorities because there's no authority, exousia, except from God. And these, the second use of authorities isn't in the original there, these that exist are appointed for God. Now, what's important here is that Paul writes Romans a few years before Peter writes 1 Peter. Both are written while Nero is the emperor in Rome. Paul is writing during the early period. Peter is writing during the later period. In the early period, Nero is fairly sane and a fairly decent emperor. In the latter period, he's nuts, and he is uh, seeking to persecute Christians, and he has uh, gone off the deep end. So here you have two different passages that agree completely with one another, and it really doesn't matter what the status of the ruler is, whether he is uh, fairly good or fairly stable or... Uh, off the charts. So Romans 13 uh, backs this up uh, completely. The word uh, for authorities the first time is this word hooper echo, which means higher ups or superior authorities. So there's no wiggle room. That's what we always look for on these passages is what's the escape clause? What's the wiggle room? I want to figure out how, um, how much I can get away with. Now, the scripture mentions a number of individual authorities, uh, especially in the New Testament. You have Israel's high priest, who is rebellious against God. The high priest in Israel during this time was, uh, you had Caiaphas, who was the son-in-law of, of Annas. Annas was still alive during this, this time, and he sort of ran uh, the high priesthood like his own personal uh, money laundering operation. Okay, he's the godfather of the uh, religious operation in Israel, and he's about as corrupt as you you could possibly be. And so all of this uh, money changing, everything that else that was going on in the temple, is all ultimately accrues to his wealth, the wealth of his family, and their power. So uh, this is a authority that was to be obeyed. Uh, even though it's unjust, those in charge of the synagogue, uh, in some cases they were probably more fair than others, but they were also a problem. Members of the Sanhedrin were unjust and hostile to Jesus. Uh, it's used of, of a judge, it's used of pagan officials, it's used of demons as well. So there are various authorities, and these authorities include both good or just rulers from a human viewpoint standard, as well as unjust and wicked rulers. And yet, both First Peter um, 2, uh, 13 and uh, Romans uh, 13, 1 say that there's no authority in that position unless it's allowed by God. God establishes those there from God. So First Peter 2, 13 goes on to say, therefore, submit your Selves to every ordinance. Now, not, that's not quite the same word that we have in Romans 13.2. Let me advance the slide here. Romans 13.2 also translates a, a Greek word ordinance. There, it's the word diatage, which does mean a decree or an ordinance. But Peter uses a very awkward term, which uh, some people have problems with, and it is uh, uh, debated among scholars just exactly how this ought to be, how, how this ought to be translated. And uh, it's the word katissis, which has as its basic meaning something that is created, something that is related to the creature. And I think it's probably related to the fact that this is talking about creaturely laws as opposed to uh, divine laws, the ordinances and laws that are the product of a created uh, institution such as uh, human government. So 1 Peter 2.13, no wiggle room, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. 
uh, for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, and then it goes on to talk about our governors as to those who are uh, sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Let's go back to Romans 13 for comparison. Uh, There Paul says, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Now that's the flip side. That's a pretty strong statement that if you are resisting a legally established government and their representatives that are doing something legal, whether you agree with it or not, whether you know you have a case or not, then you're resisting the ordinance of God. Now that has great application today. We know that there is um, there are a lot of problems that occur uh, in the black community, and I used to work a lot with black pastors and in a black community. And I know that there are uh, that I've heard story after story after story of of good solid men who will tell me that over the course of a year, if they are in a predominantly white neighborhood, they might get pulled over three or four times a year. I'm talking about a pastor, somebody who's well-educated. I'm not talking about some smart adolescent kid that's got a mouth on him. But they are respectful. But it is a genuine problem that in the black community they do feel picked on. That's legitimate. There are a lot of reasons for that. I understand that. But the way to handle that, no matter whether you think the authority is picking on you or not is to respect authority. Uh, That's what I was always taught when I was a kid and when I was um, um, being uh, trained by my parents is that when you're in a situation, when you are being confronted by someone who's in authority, then you listen to them and you respond with good manners and with respect and you do what they say to do. So if a police officer pulls you over, then you put your hands on the steering wheel and you say, yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full, no matter what they say or what they do. I've been pulled over when I thought the guy was a real idiot and jackass, and I just had to bite my tongue and not say anything. And I've had other situations where uh, the police officer was incredibly polite and very gracious. I had one situation where I got pulled over uh, correctly for uh, going a little bit over the speed limit. And um, not too long ago, I was in West Texas when you could see 20 miles down the road and was driving appropriately for that, got pulled over. And I had just gotten a concealed handgun license, and so I put my hands on the steering wheel. He came up on the passenger side of the car and... um, I'd roll down the window, and I said, Officer, I want to let you know I have a concealed handgun permit, and I have a, uh, and I, and he said, do you have any weapons in the car? And I said, yes, and I began to tell him where they were. And he said, well, are you afraid of anything? I said, no, sir, not at all. I'm not afraid of anything. I've got two rifles in the trunk. I've got handgun in the glove box, one in the console, one uh, in my holster. I'm not afraid of anything. So he was, he said, well, I kind of figured that you have an NRA cap on and uh, uh, two or three other things that were visible on the uh, on the outside of the vehicle. So he was pretty sure. And he said, now, now, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And he kind of chuckled. And it was a Sunday afternoon. He said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, and, and I've learned to play a couple of cards. You know, we all have our little cards that we can play women. Maybe they sometimes cry. I don't know. But I said, well... Well, yes, I'm a pastor, and of course, this is my weekend. I got through this morning, and I'm taking a little three-day vacation to visit an old college ROTC buddy of mine and uh, who's retired out of the Army now. We're going to do a little shooting, and we're going to do a little fishing, just relax a little bit. And he said, well, I'm just going to give you a warning, pastor, and you just go right on down the road, and you have a good time, but slow down a little bit. So it pays to be polite, and it pays to be be uh, be nice. Now, I've had similar situations happen when it didn't turn out quite that way. But you have to be that way. And uh, uh, this you have to train kids to be this way. Uh, I, I learned this at an early stage. I just thought of this. I hadn't thought about this in years. When I was five years old and a master criminal, 
I was living in Toronto, Canada and going to kindergarten. No, I may have been in first grade. And some kids were throwing snowballs. This would never happen today. Some kids were throwing snowballs at this big, solid brick side wall on the side of the school and seeing how high they could throw their the snowball up on the side. Well, that was viewed as being disrespectful to the building. And so we were all taken in and taken to the principal. And I felt terrible for getting in trouble. And when it was all over with, those two other boys were sent home. And then the principal called me in and said, those other boys were smiling and smirking, but you looked like you were really sorry and sad that you got upset. And you listened to every word I said. So you get to go back to class and there won't be any punishment. So I think I learned that lesson very well at a young age and and uh, made that apply. But that's the issue. We have to treat the person in authority with respect, whether they deserve it or not. That's part of grace orientation. Grace orientation means God saved you whether you deserved it or not. He treated you well whether you deserved it or not. So we have to treat that person in authority Uh, not because of who and what they are as an individual, but because of the office they represent. Now, the real test comes when you have to do that in respect to your president with whom you disagree. That's where it gets difficult. So we are to uh, submit to authority. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists the ordinance of God. It's a spiritual issue. You're resisting that government. You're smart-mouthing that police officer. You're talking back to a teacher. You're mouthing off to a coach. You are resisting God. It is a theological issue. It is a spiritual issue, ultimately. That's the thrust of that passage. And those who resist will bring judgment on yourself. You will incur greater judgment from that person because you have resisted their authority. Now, in this... Verse 14, Peter goes on to say um, that we're to submit to every ordinance for the, Lord, for, for the Lord's sake, whether it's to the king, who's the supreme authority, or to governors. That would be what we would think of as a governor of a state, a lower level, someone who's the ruler of a territory or a region. Governors as to those who are sent by him. Um, that would be, are those sent by the governor? See, the, it's a, translated correctly as a lowercase him, which means it's referring to either the governor or maybe the king, talking about uh, everyone else under authority is an emissary or a representative of the, uh, of the king or the national government. And so their role is to punish evildoers, and it's for the pr- praise of those who do good. Now, that is the standard. But what if... They're not punishing evildoers. What if they're a president who's just uh, letting hundreds and hundreds of prisoners out of jail? What if it's a president who's going to release uh, all kinds of terrorists from Guantanamo so that they can go back and fight and kill Americans again, which is what most of them are doing? We've got studies to prove that. Still... You obey the authority, even if it's not worthy, because it's the position, and the law has provisions for bringing them up on on charges if possible. But nevertheless, we have to obey. There's not an if clause or a conditional statement anywhere in the passage. You see the same thing in Romans 13 and 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Same situation that we have in so many of these areas, what what we see in these riots. It's not a matter of whether they have a just cause or not. Jesus had a just cause. That doesn't justify a wrong response. Two, Two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, that's a basic principle. I can hear my mother say it today over and over again. So if they're wrong, it doesn't justify wrong behavior. It doesn't justify riots. It doesn't justify uh, burning down property. It doesn't justify vandalism ever. 
so Paul says that, that we're to do what is good because it's the right thing. But we see that God raises up both just and unjust rulers. He's the sovereign. And he has used unjust rulers in numerous circumstances. Let's think about a few. First of all, we've been studying in 1 Samuel, and we've seen what happened with Saul. The people rejected God's rule over them in the theocracy of Israel, and they wanted to have a king, not like God wanted, but they wanted to have a king like everybody else. We, we see this same mentality in this country from politicians who want to model American law and American policy after what goes on in the EU. And look at how the EU's fallen apart. But that's their standard, and they want to submit to the UN. But this country was founded to get away from Europe, to get away from the way everybody else did things, and to do it in a distinct way built upon the Bible. And once we get away from the Bible, it doesn't matter. This country will not be and probably isn't anymore what you often think it to be. Because we're not, you know, President Obama got ridiculed because he said we're not a Christian nation anymore. But guess what, folks? We're not a Christian nation anymore. You know, he spoke the truth. A, 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 a blind pig finds an acorn every now and then. Saul was a carnal and evil ruler. And he was still anointed king by the will of God. God in his omniscience knew exactly what was going to happen but God was going to use Saul in his arrogance and in his uh, uh, disobedience to teach Israel a lesson, something for them uh, to learn. And he clearly authorized Samuel to anoint Saul in 1 Samuel 9, uh, 15 through 16. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel then rebuked Saul and said that God is taking the kingdom from you. He is ripping the kingdom. But it was another 10, 15 years before Saul actually died and vacated the throne. Second example, Isaiah calls Assyria the rod of God's anger and the staff in his hand so that God raised up the, the evil empire of Assyria and Sennacherib, and those that invaded and destroyed the northern kingdom and then invaded the southern kingdom and slaughtered uh, hundreds of thousands of Jews uh, were displaced or were killed, and yet God raised up those rulers in order to bring discipline upon Israel, and they were to be, those who were captured were told uh, then to be obedient to Assyria, and the same thing happened later on. When God was sending Babylon in, and you read this in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah tells the people that, that God's will is that you submit to Nebuchadnezzar and that you surrender, and then God is going to allow you to live, and God is going to take care of you. And the people said, that can't be God's will. We have to fight. And it wasn't time to fight anymore. It was time to submit. And so they rebelled against God. And they continued to fight Nebuchadnezzar, and they were slaughtered. Jerusalem was destroyed, and so was the temple. Later on, Isaiah called Cyrus God's anointed. Now, some people have thought that meant he was saved. The word anointed simply means appointed to a task, and he was appointed to a task, and that was to send the Jews back to the land. There's no evidence whatsoever that he would have known the gospel. Being anointed doesn't mean you're, you're saved. Uh, priests again and again from generation to generation were anointed, but not all of the priests were saved. It has nothing to do with salvation. So God uses unsaved, unjust rulers to accomplish his purposes. And right now we have two people running for president. One may be saved. One doesn't look like he was ever saved. Notice my use of pronouns. Okay. Uh, one... Hillary Clinton might have been saved growing up in a Methodist church. It is conceivable. I don't know that there's any evidence, but it's conceivable. I mean, actually, she worked on gold. She was one of Goldwater's girls, worked on the Goldwater campaign as a conservative in 1964. Can you believe it? And then she turned to the dark side. So 
just because somebody's a Christian doesn't mean they're going to be a good ruler. Exhibit one is Jimmy Carter. Exhibit two is Bill Clinton. So just because somebody's a Christian doesn't mean they're going to be a better ruler. I often use this this example. If I'm going to take my car to be worked on by a mechanic, I don't care where he's going to end up in heaven. I just want to make sure he can fix my car better than the guy down the street. And the guy down the street who might be a Christian may not know how to really do a good job on my car. And and so I would rather have an unsaved leader who understands leadership, and I'm not saying this applies to Donald Trump, but I would rather have an unsaved leader who understands leadership and can lead the country out of this mess because they understand establishment principles than to have somebody who claims to have been born again because they're going to be a disaster just like Jimmy Carter was. A carnal believer is going to be much worse in many cases than an unbeliever. Jeremiah said that Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. Now, at the time, Nebuchadnezzar was not a believer. I think by Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar became a believer. But I don't think that at the time Jeremiah was writing that he was a believer when he was used by God to destroy Jerusalem. But you see, even when the king is not a obedient, you still have to respect his authority. David demonstrates this on on two uh, different occasions. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 3 through 15, and in 1 Samuel 26, 1, David has Saul in a position where he could easily kill him. In one place, he's in a cave where he's gone back to go to the bathroom, and David sneaks up right behind him and cuts off a hem of his garment. And in 1 Samuel chapter 26, Saul and his men are camping out, and Saul is asleep, and David can sneak right up and could just spear him, just pin him to the ground with his spear if he'd wanted to. But in both cases, he makes this kind of statement. He said to Abishai in 1 Samuel 26, 9, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? It doesn't matter how bad he is, I can't commit another wrong that's just that would justify or that would be justified. These are the important things that we have to, to think through. Now, I'm going to stop here because the next section is going to involve a little bit more, and I don't have time to develop it. So we'll come down and come back and begin to finish this a little bit uh, when we come back together next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. We pray for our nation. We know that we are in dire straits, and that's because as a nation we have rejected the truth, We've rejected your word. We have failed to, even as Christians, to apply your word and to walk faithfully with you. And the result is that we see this, this, this country erode from the inside out. And now there are uh, thousands of different opinions, and we resemble Israel during the period of the judges, that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And the result of that is just going to be national chaos and national collapse. And it's only by your grace that that hasn't happened yet. Father, we pray that you would you would um, raise up leaders at the local level, at the state level, at the national level who understand the truth and who will stand for the truth and will not uh, succumb to the pressures in Washington. And we pray and should pray for every one of our congressional representatives because they are under pressure daily to compromise the truth and to compromise their convictions. And the assaults come in numerous ways. And, um, Father, we pray that you would strengthen them, those who are believers. Um, we know a number of them who are from the uh, Texas delegation, numerous ones are our believers, and we pray that you would strengthen them and that they would be able to see the truth for what it is and to guide and not only guide people in that direction, but to to lead in such a way that it convinces others who may not agree with them of the veracity of their position. 
Father, we need men in the pulpit who will teach the word. We need men in the pulpit who will focus on the truth of your word, not giving people what will tickle their ears, but will teach the, teach the scriptures uh, word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse, because it's only as we are transformed by your word can we be restored to the kind of greatness that this country had. And what made this country great wasn't capitalism. It wasn't the Constitution. It was the orientation to the truth of your word, and that is what gave birth to other things. But without the word of God being at the center of this culture, then there is no hope. And, Father, the only hope we know is in you and in your word, and we pray that you would raise up leaders who will proclaim the truth and people will respond. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.